Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to This is Civity. I am your host, Gina Valeria. Today on This is Civity, we welcome Martha McCoy. She is executive director of Everyday Democracy. Martha works to strengthen local communities and by helping them engage with each other to solve problems, which we're going to get into. She focuses her time on addressing problems of racial justice, community problem solving, and deliberative democracy. Welcome, Martha. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Gina. Great to be here. So first of all, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, what does that mean in layman's terms? If, yeah. I, if, I, if I'm a community member and things are going wrong, what exactly are you going to come and help me do? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> There's a lot of jargon out there about the things that we care about, and so it's good to actually put it into real words. Um, basically, it means that for a lot of the intractable issues that we face in all our communities, whether it's um, the schools aren't performing the same way for everybody, or uh, policing doesn't happen fairly for everyone. We can all relate to those issues because they're in the news all the time. It means that um, as a person who lives in that community, I can actually start doing something about it by actually bringing people together who who need to get together, who don't often have a chance to work together, to actually get to know each other and to build relationships and to begin to solve some of the problems. And it means actually kind of bringing together some public officials with regular folks also, because we don't often have ways to do that that are productive. Absolutely. And so, uh, because you mentioned public officials, let's go there. Some people feel, um, well, there's local, there's regional, there's state, there's national. And some people just feel completely disconnected. They feel you know, I can say what I want. I feel like I'm raising my hand. I feel like I'm, you know, maybe I'm not going to the city council meetings, but I feel like I'm being vocal. And yet decisions keep getting made that are not in my best interest and I'm frustrated. Exactly. And that's part of why we call ourselves everyday democracy, because a lot of times people think of democracy, they think, oh, I'm going to go vote or I'll go, go to a city council meeting or something like that, you know. But really what it means is there ought to be opportunities every day for all of us to have a voice in ways that are welcome, welcoming and meaningful to us, that are culturally competent. You know, so for example, you know, in most places you go to a city council meeting and there's like an open mic, right? And the people who get up are really angry and they're saying things that are angry and the city council members aren't usually listening. And so you kind of feel like you're spitting into the wind. Uh, and that's what we think of as democracy, and it's no wonder that people are alienated from it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really what we need to be creating are different kinds of opportunities where people are actually having a chance to listen to one another and not just having two-minute sound bites, but actually getting to know each other, talking about why they care about what, what they care about, and actually figuring out ways together to make a difference. And, you know, I'd love to talk to you about experiences you've had in that area, but I would also, here in San Francisco or in the Bay Area, we have, we are in the middle of this mass sort of hyper-gentrification. Yes. And uh, last October, there was a situation which you may or may not have heard about, uh, the, the soccer field in the Mission District. Uh, these these kids or the community members have been going there for years. If you win, you get to keep playing. If you, you know, they have a whole system. And... 
but a group of guys showed up, looked like they were tech workers, you know, based on their their dress and their attire, and they walked up and said, hey, man, we reserve the field. The kids on the field were like, what are you talking about? We play on this field every day. What do you mean you reserve the field? They said, well, we went down to City Hall. We paid our 27 bucks. Here's our permit. And all of a sudden, an argument ensued, and it was videotaped. Yo, there is no 7 to 8. Anything. If you want to play pickup, you play pickup like the rest of us. It's not you, know, you can book the field. field. You, you can book the field. field. Just because you got money and you can pay for the field, you don't get to book it for an hour to take over these kids. Not, this field has never been booked. Well, okay. You don't understand. So, this field has never been booked. How long have you been in the neighborhood, bro? How long have you been in the neighborhood? Been in the neighborhood? Over, over, here. over a year. How long have you been playing here for? Because Wait, my whole I've life, here like I've been born and times. raised here for 20 seven years. Times. In my whole life, we've been playing. You can share. One time, you let other people play. We will share with you. Why don't you get a team and we play pickup seven v seven like it always is? All that we understand is no. There is no permit. It does not matter if there's a piece of paper. Why don't we all just play? I would love to play seven. Let's do that. Let's play. Let's play. You got a team. We got a team. Let's play seven v seven. Later, they agreed to split the field, and but it got into the media, and people have taken this incident as this, this is the manifestation of the gentrification happening in the city. Yeah. So, you know, and they went to City Hall. City Hall agreed to, or the Parks and Rec agreed to, for that one field, to let it continue to be a pickup field. But it's one field out of how many? Right, right. And this is so typical. It's so typical, and not just in the Bay Area, but all over the country. I think the, the Bay Area is a hyper example of gentrification and growing income inequality. But it's also, you know, happening all over the country, growing income inequality, resegregation of schools, resegregation of neighborhoods, and fewer and fewer opportunities for people to actually even rub shoulders with each other. And when they do, it's unfortunately often in situations like the one you talked about. Right. So how might we address something like that? You know, in a situation like this where, you know, you're coming into someone's neighborhood, there's still both populations there. People should be a community, and yet people have such different ideas of community. Right. What, might, what might deliberative democracy do? Right. So that's a great question because um, there are people everywhere who kind of feel this but don't quite know what to do about it. And sometimes people don't even know that there are resources to help them do something about it. Yeah. And so part of what we, you know, part of what we are talking to people about is when you bring together some people, even just a core group of, say, 10 people in a place that is diverse and starting to bridge divides among themselves, then that group in turn can begin to reach out to establish more bonds and connections across a whole community. Because really what we're lacking is the places to do that. I often say to people that, you know, nobody had to wake up this morning and say, today I'm going to remember to be a consumer. I'm going to remember to use my credit card. And, you know, we don't have to put that on our to-do list, you know, because everywhere we've got all these opportunities to participate in the marketplace, right? But, you know, but as community members, as citizens, it's like, it's almost like it's a thing we have to be really individualistic about and, tr you know, try to reach out. And obviously it's important to do that, but there ought to be opportunities that are welcoming. Absolutely. I love that example you just gave. I don't need to put on my to-do list that I'm going to go buy lunch or buy something. Yeah, that is so true. And yet I've got to put on my to-do list. I've got to actually stop, redirect, make time, to civically engage, and right. that's crazy. Right. right, because we ought to be creating opportunities for that that are at least as welcoming as the marketplace. I think more. You know, we ought to be thinking about, okay, how do we create these spaces where people from different backgrounds and views can actually sit down together, share 
uh, food, share some stories with each other, create relationships. And it's kind of one of these paradoxes, right? So all of us feel like we want to spend time with people who are different from ourselves. We know in our hearts that that's the real meaning of community. But there's the other part of us that really just wants to be with people like ourselves. And so it's a real paradox, um, but it's almost like if we don't build those other opportunities, it's too hard to, to do. I mean, you can't walk up to somebody like at the post office and say, hey, what do you think about gentrification? You know, it's like, <laughs> so true. You know, I mean, because that's not how it happens. And so I think, you know, places like Everyday Democracy, uh, groups like Civity, other groups around the country, what we're trying to do is to say, hey, there's a way to create those spaces. And when those spaces get created, amazing things happen. Um, and they fly kind of under the screen of a lot of people's screens because what happens is our media are generally just so focused on polarization and actually feeding it. And so it's really easy, and as one recent survey said that Americans feel more connected technologically, but more socially isolated than they have felt since the 1930s. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, so the fact is, you know, we're connected, but we're not really connected in ways that are, the, sometimes the technology can help us, you know, and that's great, but we're not really connected in ways that are feeding um, our humanity, and that's yeah. a problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. And the in the example you gave with the news media, as a journalist, I worked in daily news, and it was it was really you just didn't have the time. And it, like you said, it's easy, or as you said, it's easy uh, to grab this side and that side. Done, got a story. And yeah. and I want to do better, but oh my gosh, I got to get on to the next thing because that's what my you know that's what my time is like. That's what I have to do. And and um and then. It's the it's the same analogy you gave earlier. It's really easy to get that news. That's all yeah. right there on a platter for us. And to go find the stuff that's going to help us connect or be a little bit more rich or more deep, it's much more difficult to find. And these are difficult things to create. And and that's why it takes organizations to yeah. come up and, and build them. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's really like we have, when you think about it, we have campaign organizations right now that are loosely connected to our public life. You know, people, people might think they're, they are connected to our electoral life and as quasi-democratic as that is. So the problem with that is we have billions of dollars and organizations feeding into our polarization every day. And so there are, we are civically organized. The problem is how we're civically organized. And so, you know, people are trying to manipulate and sometimes really succeeding. They're manipulating us to mistrust each other, to actually have hatred of people who believe things that are different, and also feeding into racialized stereotypes that have very powerful historical roots in our country. And that is also feeding the racial racialization of the immigration debate. And also, you know, some things people call dog whistles. Well, the dog whistles aren't even dog whistles any longer. I mean, it's almost like megaphones where people are proclaiming things that are out and out uh, biased, um, racist, and hate hateful. And so basically, when you're in community and you hear that, whether you're a white person or a person of color, whatever ethnicity you are, you begin to incorporate those messages in subtle and not so subtle ways about what it means to be in a community where there's diversity. And people begin to sort of 
fear each other or skirt around the issues or feel like they can't go there. Um, there's, there are all these studies, brain science studies, that are coming out which are amazing about implicit bias. And that really means that as a, and I, I'm a white woman, and so as a white person, then it means that um, what has happened in our society is that a lot of notions about the other, you know, the otherness of the other, and especially people of color, have been fed into our brains as white people. And even if we on the outside consciously say, you know, I stand against bias and I'm, you know, I consider myself a good person, those notions get in there in unconscious ways. And not just with white people, with people of color as well. So it's, it's really something that unless we have real relationships with people, we can't counter those things. I, I, I want to get delve more deeply into that. We're going to take a break for just a moment, and when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of the implicit bias and the fear and sort of aversion to this word privilege among some circles. Uh, I'm here talking with Martha McCoy of Everyday Democracy. This is Gina Bellaria with This Is Civity. We will be back in just a moment. Every three minutes, another woman gets the news that she has breast cancer. And here are some of the first words she hears. Hertenew oncogene. Aromatase inhibitor, ductocarcinoma in situ. What do these words mean? How are you going to decide what to do if you can't even say what you have? Listen to me, Shirley Jones. As soon as you get your diagnosis, go to breastcancer.org. It's a special place on the internet where you can learn how to say all those breast cancer words and find out what they mean. At breastcancer.org, you can learn more about your particular kind of cancer and your treatment options. Prepare a list of questions for your next doctor's visit and get all kinds of other useful information to guide you and your family through this. Breastcancer.org, the first place to go the minute you find out you have breast cancer. Welcome back to This is Civity. I'm Gina Bellaria here today with Martha McCoy of Everyday Democracy, and we are talking about what's going on in our communities that makes it more diff difficult for us to engage civically and engage with each other. Right before the break, Martha, you started talking about the idea of othering, uh, the, the idea that we have, uh, because of a lot of the messages we're receiving and the way we're orienting our civic uh, structure, that we've started to uh, develop this fear of, quote, the other. Um, and a quick anecdote, I want to get into that. I, I'm uh, a Caucasian, Italian, Caucasian, married to an African, a black guy, and we went to UCLA. We have uh, so much in common. We've grown up in similar families. So he's not the other to me. He's uh, like, I get him more than I get other Italians, you know? And, um, and so I'm fascinated by how othering gets structured because to me, I base my connections and, uh, and my othering on, on different things. And, and, in, and in official capacity, there was a recent study showing that people, interracial marriage is actually more accepted today, but marriage between political parties is less accepted today, which I think is hysterical. Um, and I want to I delve into that too, so there's so much to talk about. But first of all, let's talk about this community othering and what, what that can do and how that can impact us when, in our everyday lives. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I mean, it really um, structures where we feel comfortable, where we go, where we shop, who we hang out with, um, um, who we feel like we can solve problems with. 
you know, who we feel like we are comfortable in public meetings with. It, it really affects everything. It really affects everything about what we do. And it really is, it's subtle. Sometimes it's really subtle. And what's not subtle is the way that it happened. Because public policy structured our cities and our neighborhoods so that they were segregated. Public policy led to all sorts of all sorts of insidious things that we're still experiencing, which people often chalk up to human nature. And so I kind of, I want to say something about that because that feels really important to me. Sometimes sure. people think, oh, well, everybody's bigoted and that's just human nature and we can get over it. And in fact, things are getting better and things like that. Um, but in actuality, a lot of the structures that actually set the way we are responding to each other were put in place a long time ago. And people are responsive to structures that actually create some opportunities to work together, but those were not created. And so you might think of us kind of in our human nature as there are things that can be responsive to actually drawing on our desires to cooperate, work with others, live in diversity and things like that. And there are things that can actually play into the fears, the polarization, et cetera. So I think we have to pay attention to our internal uh, state of being, like with the implicit bias, one of the things that we can do is begin paying attention to when things are coming up that we might not have noticed before in terms of something we assumed about another person. We all do it. You know, and so that's one good thing we can do. And the other good thing we can do is actually think, how can we create some things external to ourselves that actually provide those ways to actually start thinking about the other as um, somebody we know, like you were saying, you and your husband. You've spent time together. You know each other. And so that is, that is the cure for the individual manifestation, but that's not, unfortunately, the cure for the structural manifestation, which we still have to create remedies for. Absolutely, and, and it's true, that structural, that structural implications of what happened decades, century ago, does resonate, and, and I, we hear all the time, if we're talking specifically about racial barriers and ethnic barriers, we hear all the time, well, you know, we no longer, everyone can buy a house wherever they want now, that policy's gone. It's like, yeah, but that policy set in place, like whether or not someone could accumulate wealth through property or not, um, exactly. I hear all the time, if, I, if you think interpersonally, uh, I hear all the time from friends or people you know, gosh, yeah, this happened to me when I was a kid, and you know, I have this relationship with my parents, and you know, it really impacted me, I'm working on it, you know, but gosh, you know, and it's like, well, you, you understand that that has ramifications for your present day, <laughs> but what about this? Right, right about whole historical institutions, et cetera. I mean, it's, it is pretty amazing that we're kind of blinded to uh, how we got where we are. And uh, so we think we just kind of landed here and it's like the weather or something, you know, and we, so we have to deal with it. And people created those structures. People can deconstruct and recreate them. And, you know, there's, it's not a mystery why in many school systems, most of the teachers are still primarily, you know, European American. And even when student bodies are primarily students of color. And so there are all sorts of ways in which the current day is absolutely uh, a reflection of the current bias that's going on, but also the structural bias and racism that led to it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about, um, uh, you know, I've dropped the privilege bomb. Let's talk about the word privilege. <laughs> this is a fascinating word to me. And I, too, was someone that used to uh, and still have a little bit of, it's a strange word. And it's like privilege. I don't have, you know, I have a lot of money. I don't have a big house. I, how am I privileged? And, and I mean, I, I understand I have embraced it 
uh, but it, it's a word that people automatically assume means something else, and therefore it it stops conversation. Yeah. And how do we? And and, and on the other side, people who are trying to get the message out about privilege and how it impacts people are just like, well, I I don't know what to do with you guys. This is what's happening, and and I'm done with you. So you have two sides just so frustrated by the other, and we can't. And we can't seem to gain an understanding. And I think the, I, I think the semantics are a part of it. But I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Gina, because um, for me, I've seen the word privilege sort of turn people off because of people who grew up in um, not wealthy circumstances who say, you know, basically, hey, you know, I'm white, but I grew up poor. And how can you call me privileged? And I think sometimes we do ourselves a bit of a disservice by using that language. I Sometimes I explain it to people by talking about unfair advantage. I think most people can ex can accept that, you know, that there are unfair advantages that come with skin color in our in our society, and it doesn't mean that everybody um, who is white had equal advantages, but it means that um, it means that there's an additional barrier to um, to making it. Two great examples come to mind for me when it when it comes to this. Years ago, um, I think it was, um, gosh, it was like in when we first started sort of hearing this term as a culture. Ted Koppel actually did something on Nightline where he asked people, he asked some white guys, "Do you think racism still exists?" "Oh no, no, it's everything is really better now. It's fine." And he said, "So you'd be okay if you woke up tomorrow and you were an African American guy." And uh, so that would be fine with you because you think the advantages are all about equal right now. The opportunities are about equal today. That'd be okay for you. And they're like, well, no. And he said, so how much would, you, would it take, how much money would it take for you to say it's okay for me to wake up tomorrow morning and be an African-American guy? And every guy said at least a million dollars. Wow. And to me, it's like, okay, they were putting a price tag on skin privilege because even though they said it's the same, no, it's going to take a lot to actually convince me that it's okay for me to wake up black. And uh, another thing that comes to mind to me is um, um, my colleague, John Powell, who's at Berkeley. Is, he leads the Haas Institute for Ethnicity and Inclusion. He has said, you know, it's kind of like if, if, he and I were both, he's African-American, so if he and I were both kind of tied down with five ropes. And, I mean, I'm sorry, he had ten ropes, I had five ropes. And somebody came along and they removed my five ropes, and I got up. But he was still tied down. And I basically said, hey, John, what's your problem? Why can't you get up? You know, and I, I did have some disadvantages, you know, and so somebody helped me with those. And then I kind of per perceived he ought to be done with his also. So it's really about comparative disadvantage, and I think that's a harder concept to get across. You're absolutely right. It doesn't mean that I or you or someone doesn't have disadvantages. We all do. We all move forward in life. It's just that sometimes they're a little bit more insurmountable, a little bit more challenging than others. Right, and, when, and some of them are systematic. Yes. And that's the case in, in, with racism. It's systematic. Yeah. So how do we get at that? Well, okay. It's a big question. Um, how has deliberate, how has deliberative democracy or placivity or, you know, how do you start to break into that and, and get at that problem? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that for us in our learning uh, at Everyday Democracy, we realized that 
we had to combine notions of people talking with each other in different ways and across divides and things like that with some systematic forms of doing um, community organizing differently so you could create a civic infrastructure that actually upholds those things. So it's not like a one-shot deal where you say, okay, we're going to get together in a public meeting and form a few relationships, and then maybe a year from now we'll have the same opportunity, you know, that every time you have to reinvent the wheel. So we're really working with communities to help them to create those opportunities. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.